Well, good morning and happy Sabbath once again. I'm going to ask you all something. This is not sermon related. This is more church related on how we do service. Uh, I kind of talked to a few of y'all earlier before we started service, but I wanted to ask the church family of what they think about this. And feel free to text me or email or tell me in person on what you think of this. One of the things that we've been looking at this past year was our culture. What's our culture of our church? Are we welcoming to all people? Are we all things to all people? And so as we've been thinking about that, we've looked at our Sabbath school or our Bible study. Is it welcoming? If someone is new to Christianity or new to Jesus, is it going to help them grow in Jesus? So we were looking at that. We were also looking at songs that we sing, messages that are spoken. Is it all Christ-centered? Is it going to bring people to God? And as we looked at all of this, I realized because we're a small church family, what if we changed our service around? 10.45 a.m., we come and sing songs. And then around maybe, it doesn't have to be exactly, but maybe around 10.55 or 11 o'clock, that's when a prayer will be given. And then a brief message, 15, 20 minutes in length. And I'm not trying to sell, I'm not trying to say, I don't want to speak anymore, that's why. No, that's not the case. Here's the reason why the message will be shorter, 15, 20 minutes in message. And then we break out in Bible study. In the Bible study, it won't be the uh, quarterly, but it'll be the message given to us by the speaker of that day. We review that message that was spoken, so that way, you know, if you're anything like me, when I'm listening to a sermon or a message, thoughts come up, and questions may arise. And so I thought maybe that would be a great way to to uh, to end the service with a Bible study. So here's the reason why I was thinking we could do this. Our AV and music team, who have to practice from 9.50 till we start at 11, they don't get the benefit of Bible study or fellowship. It will allow them, it will give them the opportunity to sit in on, in on Bible study. It also will somewhat relieve the stress that we have to be so rigid in having this part of the program and then that part of the program and then this part of the program. So that way we can be more, what's the, what's the word, flexible or, or it's just a little more endearing because we're such a small church. So I, I don't need uh, an answer at this very moment, but I want you to give it some thought, think about it, if some questions or concerns or if you have another idea to add into it, let me know. And then I'll share this with the church board and see what they think. And, and then we could potentially have a different way of doing service, right? So, awesome. Well, thank you for coming once again to worship with us. It's been a few weeks since I spoke on Into His Likeness. And so I've really enjoyed this series. I don't know how you felt about it, but, but for me, this is by far one of the longer series I've ever had uh, as a pastor. 
And the whole point of into his likeness is for us to realize the point of life is not just to find your calling, but to walk with Jesus so that you and I can be transformed into his likeness. And then in week two, we, we learn that his likeness is the Holy Trinity, right? God, Father, and Son. But did you know that you and I are also made in the Trinity model? Mind, body, and spirit. So from week three to week four and week five, we talked about the mind. That if our mind is to walk with Jesus, we experience salvation. If we set our mind on things above, then we will reflect Christ-like attitude on earth. Then week six and week seven focused on physical our physical well-being as a person, right? So mind, body, and spirit, remember that? So week six, we focused on how Jesus was able to go around doing good because he was physically healthy to serve. Did you know we have a responsibility to stay physically healthy so we can live for others, so we can live for God, okay? And then week seven, continuing on physicality, God's expectations for you physically re-energizes you to love others. This was three weeks ago when I gave that message on the great expectations, right? That sometimes expectations in our life can become so great that the secular world has these expectations that we feel like we need to abide by or that we need to align our life with only to bog us down, only to have us ignore our family or these expectations just interrupting our health, right? We looked at Matthew chapter 11 where Jesus says, take my yoke upon you for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' expectations physically re-energizes us because his expectation is just one thing. What's his expectation? To love others as you love yourself. Love them as God loves them. So today, we continue with into his likeness. We move on from mind, body, and now we go into the spirit. Power in the spirit. I want you to think of the first car that you ever drove. (laughs) Dave just laughed. What was that like, Dave, your first car? Piece of junk. (laughs) So... I hope my dad's not watching because I'm about to say my car, my first car was a piece of junk too. Uh, if you know the Toyota Previa, that big round Toyota van, well, I had the predecessor to that. Okay. The driver's side door wouldn't even open at one point, so I had to jump out into the passenger side door just to get out. It was embarrassing when I drove it to school. But the thing is, I made extra money on the side because it was a six-passenger in the back, or seven, and if you're in high school, I was fitting eight, and I would have my friends ride with me. I was their school bus, and, and they would pay me gas money. And back in those days, a dollar or two dollars goes a long ways, I could drive like 50 miles on gas. Now you can't do that. Suffice it to say, this first car I had was problematic. And at one point, for me to drive this car or to start this car, I I had to put it in neutral and then get it moving and then start it. So if you're a mechanic, 
you probably know what the problem is. And I, I, I remember my dad fixing that problem, but I didn't know what the problem was. I would do it that way for about, I think, maybe two weeks until one day my dad caught me and he said, what are you doing? My dad's a mechanic, by the way. So he looked at the car and he realized there was a connection problem that was not allowing, now I don't know cars, so I don't even know what the connection problem was. Nonetheless, once he put that wire back on, the car started naturally. Key in the ignition and turn it, right? It would finally work. The problem was a connection problem. And this is how the Holy Spirit blesses us. This is how the Holy Spirit empowers us. The Holy Spirit connects us to God. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it says here, but you will receive what? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is from the mouth of Jesus. This is in the, con- the context of the story, Jesus is about to to leave his disciples. He's about to leave earth, not just leave his disciples, but he is now going back to heaven. He's about to ascend (coughs) to heaven. Uh, In Acts chapter 1, the preceding verses of verse 8, it tells us that he stayed with his people for 40 days, right? And now he was going to leave. And just as he's about to leave, his disciples are concerned. Well, you've been with us for three years, You've walked with us, you ate with us, you laughed with us, you taught us, you inspired us, and when we did wrong, you rebuked us. Who's going to be with us now? See, that's the question that we ask ourselves even to this day. God, are you even there? Well, according to Jesus, it is through the Holy Spirit that God is with us. Not only is the Holy Spirit with us, not only is God with us through the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit gives us power. And the question I have to ask then is, how does the Holy Spirit give us power? This is where we go to John chapter 16, verse 8 through 11. Let's read this one. This is John 16, 8 through 11. And you can keep your Bible open to John 16 because we're going to stay in this chapter the majority of the sermon. John 16, 8 through 11. I'm going to go all the way to verse 5. Let's start in verse 5 and then, and then we'll go through 11. Two eleven. It says, Now I am going to him who sent me. Jesus is the one speaking, right? He's going to God. The Father. He's going back to God the Father, uh, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. So what are they experiencing? They're grieving at this moment. The disciples are grieving because Jesus is about to leave. Verse 7, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor... In another sermon, I I explained that the counselor is also the Holy Spirit, right? If I could not go away, the counselor will not come to you. And why is that? 
Have you ever stopped and paused to think, why does the Holy Spirit really have to wait until Jesus is gone? I believe, now, here's, there's a lot of proof that the Holy Spirit has been doing work, God's work, in the Old Testament. But it wasn't until the New Testament, not until Jesus came, uh, does God emphasize how the Trinity is really working. This is God's likeness. God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit working together for your salvation and my salvation. So what is happening here is, at this moment, Jesus is physically with his disciples. But he wants to emphasize that that spirituality, that walking with God does not have to be a physical thing. He does not have to physically be there with you and me. Just like how, how you love your spouse or your child, right? And as much as you love your spouse, you know that that love is still there even though they're not with you every second of the day. This is what Jesus is trying to emphasize. He's saying before the Holy Spirit can take my place, I have to leave. So this is a wonderful promise for us, that through the Holy Spirit, God does not have to be physically here. Through His Holy Spirit, we are still connected to Him. We are still in His presence. That's the significance of the Holy Spirit here. So verse 7, it says, Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. So how does the Holy Spirit empower you and me? How do we find power through the Holy Spirit? Number one, it convinces. The Holy Spirit convinces. I should say He convinces us. Convinces us of sin and righteousness and judgment. I'll speak more on that in a little while. Number two, what's the second thing that the Holy Spirit does to empower us? John 16, verse 13, it says, But when he, the Spirit of truth, now now Jesus does not only call him the counselor, but he also calls him the Spirit of truth. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. Uh, He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you, what is yet to come. So now the the Holy Spirit is also one that guides you in truth. And boy, do we need truth now more than ever before. So many lies are said about God, right? So many misinterpretations. But the Holy Spirit not only convinces us about God, but also guides us in the truth of who God is. And then the last thing that we see here in this uh, chapter, verse 14, it says, He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. So what is he doing here? The Holy Spirit also glorifies Jesus. Glorifies Jesus. I won't speak on great detail on all 
three of these today because this is our outline for the next few sermons for the coming weeks. But today we're going to focus on convince the world. Convincing the world. What does that mean? Well, first of all, I'm using the word convince, but in your Bible, if it's NIV, it actually says that he will convict, convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. So am I just making up stuff? Well, we've got to look at the original language here. In the Greek, this is pronounced elegke. Elegke can mean reprove. That's how elegke is usually used in the New Testament. It's to reprove or convince or expose. So any of those are, are very synonymous to the word convict. But why did NIV use the word convict? Who has something here that's different from NIV? What do you have? Prove. Okay, so uh, he will prove the word uh, the world of guilt. Okay, anyone else? So prove is very synonymous to elegke. Does anyone else have a different word? No. Who has convict in their Bible? Okay, several of y'all. Good. So why choose the word convict when that is not a very common word in, uh, to translate elegke? Well, I believe NIV is trying to emphasize a point here. NIV is trying to point the fact that convict, when you hear the word convict, it's not just to convince. Now, this is actually making a judgment, right? Convict is a word that's used in the legal world, when you're in the, in the court, in the courtroom. Now, many of y'all know my history. I've shared my history with y'all very freely. I've been in a courtroom before, 18 years old. And the, and the female judge, I believe her name was Denise, I can't remember her last name anymore, but she said, Edre Santos, the state of Texas, has found you guilty of credit card fraud, so now you have been convicted with a felony, right? At that point, I thought it was punishment. I thought it was an unfair punishment. But as I got older, I realized the reason the court system will convict is not just to place a felony on you, but it's also to, in, to encourage you to grow out of that fiasco or that sin that I'm in, right? And to hopefully get myself on the straight and narrow. And so this is why I believe NIV uses the word convict is to convict us of the guilt that we have for sin, So, guilt and convict is tied together here. So you might wonder, is God using guilt in a way for me to come to him? That that sounds wrong, because guilt is such a nasty thing. That's what our world would like to think. That's what our world would like to tell us. But did you know, guilt can actually be a useful way to bring us to God. What is guilt? Guilt is aversive and like shame, embarrassment, or pride has been described as a self-conscious emotion involving reflection on oneself. I got this from Psychology Today, and the source is right there. I like this explanation. Number one, it says that guilt is an emotion. Not just the state of mind, 
but it's an emotion that you and I can feel. And it's equated or synonymous to shame, embarrassment, or pride. But I love the last part of the sentence. It says, involving reflection on oneself. That's what we should do with any emotion, not just with guilt. We should actually reflect on that. That's why I'm so glad Crystal Strother, my my dear friend, was with us two weeks ago, who was here when she was our guest speaker, right? She spoke specifically on mental health and emotions, on how emotions can help us, right? And I loved her presentation. Remember, she had that iceberg illustration where anger was on top and underneath were all of these other emotions, And then the other thing that Crystal said is that people won't give time to their emotions and they can't even name their emotions sometimes. So if you can't name your emotions, how are you going to experience God? How are you going to experience your relationship with other people? How is that relationship going to be? Right? So I love this explanation from psychology today that it emphasizes that it's an emotion. And if anything, we should reflect on our emotions. Furthermore, the article continues on and says, uh, when one causes harm to another, guilt is a natural emotional response. I believe that's because God created us that way. Okay. Guilt is socially relevant. What does that mean, socially relevant? It's important for your relationship with other people. Guilt is important for that. It is thought to serve important interpersonal uh, functions by, for example, encouraging the repair of valuable relationships. What? Guilt can help me repair valuable relationships? Yes, it can. It can. One time, uh, my, my, my greatest challenge when I first got married, have I shared this story before? I don't know what stories I share anymore. I mean, I repeat them to students. I repeat them in, in workshops when I gave workshops to hospital employees. So if I share this one before, then, then, then tell me and I'll stop. But, but one of the challenges I had when I first got married was spending money that Bobby and I, you know, we have one bank account. That's how we practice our relationship, one bank account. And, and she said, let's save our money so we can buy a house. That was one of the first goals we had, to buy a house. But I like to spend money like how I did when I was a single guy, without talking to my wife about it. So one day she saw the, the statement, and she was so upset. You bought a what? A TV? We don't need a TV. But I need the TV for my PlayStation. <clears throat> no, you don't. And suffice it to say, we got in an argument. And that night, uh, I, I was praying about it. And I, and I thought maybe Bobby was being selfish of all things. Why wouldn't she let me have a TV? And why do I need to ask permission to, to buy a TV? Now, in my mind, uh, where I'm at today... It's not about permission. It's about coming together, right? It's about coming together. So that night I prayed about it and I said, Lord, she's got to be in the wrong, right? I, can, I should be able to spend my money the way I, I want to spend my money is what I was thinking. That was really my prayer. I don't know how sincere you are with God, but I will tell God when I'm really angry, like, can you throw a rock at him or something? But, but with Bobby, I was like, I think Bobby's wrong. I think she's wrong, Right. And then I took this very Bible, this exact Bible, 
without even giving it any thought, I turned, and the page it turned on uh, to was Luke 18. That's the story of the rich young ruler who was so stubborn he couldn't give up his pride. I took that as a rebuke from God that day. That day I felt guilt in my heart. And the following morning, I sucked up my, my pride, and I went to Bobby and I said, you know what, you're right, and I'm sorry. I promise it won't happen again even though it's happened like two more times. And then finally, I learned my lesson the third time. <laughs> so, marriages are long-suffering, right? But I, I felt guilt. And that guilt was important for reconciliation. How can we experience reconciliation, not just with our loved ones, but with God, if we cannot experience guilt? And so when we go back to this, to this verse in John chapter 16, verse 8 and 11, when it says, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt. Now, does it have a different connotation to it? The Holy Spirit allows us to feel guilt. But I'm going to step out even further and say that the Holy Spirit is one who works with us on our, with our emotions. He doesn't control our emotions. That goes against the power of choice. That goes against the very being of who God's character is. He doesn't control our emotions. But God allows us to experience emotions because emotions, I believe, is what keeps us in line or keeps us in touch with the Holy Spirit and vice versa. It's right there in the Bible verse. It tells us that the Holy Spirit will convict the world of guilt. That's an emotion. We established that, right? That, that guilt is an emotion. Well, how many emotions are there? According to Dave, uh, David Coleman, who wrote Emotional Intelligence, believes that there's 92, 92 emotions I've done this exercise with many people before. In 30 seconds, write down all of the emotions. On average, people can only name 8 to 12 emotions. But there's 92. And if you can't even name half of them, then you're probably experiencing life that you're not even familiar with, right? That, that you're experiencing things that, that, are, that are very foreign to you. And that's why maybe, maybe that's why some people are just confused. And so what I love about this message is that God is a God who is in tune with our emotions. And this is what I believe emotions are. I believe emotions are more to the spirit world of our life as opposed to mind and body. That's why you and I feel. If you ever want to look at this, and I think I did that before in one sermon, God has emotions too. God is an angry God. God is a jealous God, right? In the book of Exodus, in Exodus 20, that I am a jealous God. Thou shalt not have no other gods before me. God is a God who feels. In, I believe in the book of Proverbs, it says that God hates seven things. It's not people that he hates, but he hates seven things. And look that up. You'll, you'll see that God experiences emotions too. We're talking about into his likeness. That's why you and I feel is because God, through emotions, we are connected with God. Now, 
We can't sit in guilt. We can't sit in depression. We can't sit in anger. If we let our anger get the best of us, then we become violent, then that's when it's a sin. But aside from that, if you're feeling sadness today, if you're feeling guilt today, if you're feeling uh, anger, if you're feeling any type of emotion, what I would recommend you do when you have these emotions, pray about it. Pray about it. Ask God, first and foremost, why am I feeling this? What can you teach me? What can I learn from this emotion? Pray about it. Because, because, just like this verse, it might just be the Holy Spirit touching your heart that very moment. And that's why you are feeling the way you feel. First thing I would say is pray. Pray. Because it's like what uh, Chappie said. There are some evil spirits out there. Maybe it's an evil spirit that's consuming you. So you have to pray to make sure it's not the evil spirit that is affecting your heart at that very moment. But it's the spirit of God who's trying to tell you something. Trying to make you feel something. When I think of this, and I'm going to go back to our key text and we'll end with this thought. When I go back to this key text, Acts 1 to 8, let's remember this, that the disciples were concerned that day that, they, that Jesus was about to leave them, right? Did you realize from the time that they had the last supper with Jesus until Jesus ascended was only a matter of a few months? A matter of a few months. They went from feeling uh, being on the top of the world, feeling uh, super happy and joyful because Jesus is with them and then Jesus is arrested. What's the emotion that you'll tie with that? If someone is arrested, a loved one of yours is arrested, how do you think you would feel? You'd probably feel um, disbelief, right? You might feel uh, some maybe some anger if it's unjustified, right? And then after Jesus is... Um, is arrested, he has his trial. And the trial is a farce. It, 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 it's, a, it's, a, it's a dumb trial. They're trying to ask Jesus. He's passed between Pilate and, and the high priest, and they're asking him, who, do you, who are you? Are you truly the son of God? The trial was a farce. How would you feel about that if you're the disciples witnessing all of this? Scared, right? And now, not only is he found guilty, now he's put on the cross. And you're still probably thinking, hanging on to some hope, thinking, oh, there's got to be something that's going to happen here, some, some big miracle. Maybe he's, God's going to strike lightning down or thunder down, and then he's going to come off that cross. But no, it doesn't happen that way. What happens instead? Jesus dies. Now, not only are you scared, not only are you angry, now what are you feeling? Alone, lost, disappointed. Did Jesus just lie to us? Was he really not the Messiah? Do you see all the emotions that they're, that they're experiencing? And then not only that, now <coughs> Roman soldiers are instructed, anyone who was part of that group are going to be punished too. Now you're even more scared. Now you're trying to run away for your life. That's all in a matter of a few days. But we know the story of Jesus didn't end in death. He resurrected and he lived again and he lives to this day. And then 40 days later, 
we're at this scene and he's saying goodbye to his disciples. And his disciples, now they are hopeful once again. They're probably even happy. But goodbyes are never easy, right? Have you ever had to say goodbye to a loved one? I'm going to go back to Bobby. Bobby and I used to do a long-distance relationship for about, what, six months, eight months? And every single time, she was crying when we said bye. I'm kidding. I was the one that was really crying. <laughs> so, we were at the airport. I was the one, like, bawling, like, oh, man, can we just live in the same state already? Why do we have to finish school? You know? But, but that, that it, it's all mixed feelings in there. It's like you're happy, but also sad at the same time. Two months of an emotional roller coaster that the disciples went through, that the followers of Jesus went through. You have to read between the lines in the Bible. Because the Bible, the culture of the people back then were very, they were thinkers, not based on emotion. Our society is more emotional. It really is. Our society is more emotional today. But if you look at it, read between the lines, you'll see that the disciples, go th- they went through the same thing you and I are going through right now. The emotions of getting sick, the emotions of getting a, starting a new job, and you're thinking, wow, this is such a blessing. But then a loved one gets in a car accident. Or maybe you get fired from a job. Or maybe you're trying to look for a job. Or maybe you're just praying to God that, that can I be reconciled with this person who, who I've been fighting with for, for many months now? The emotional roller coaster ride that you and I go through, it's a God thing. I think God blessed us. I think God created us with emotions so we could understand him and we can connect with him and he can connect with us. He uses our emotions to let us know that he is there. And so the question I asked earlier, what is this power that the Holy Spirit will give us? Well, we saw three powers just to review to convict us, to convict our guilt and our emotions. Number two was that um, uh, to lead us in truth, which we'll talk about next week. And then the third one was to glorify Jesus. And we'll talk about that in two weeks from now. But for the time being, for today's lesson, what I leave with you at this moment is that the Holy Power, that the Holy Spirit empowers you through the very emotions that you feel. Let's pray. Blessed Heavenly Father, thank you for creating us in your image because your image is beautiful. You being a jealous God just means that you're a God that wants and longs to be with us. You being an angry God is a God that wants to protect us out of love. You being a loving God speaks to your wonderful character of how you are long-suffering and patient with us. And so I pray, O Lord, that our emotions not get the best of us. May we not use that as an excuse, but if anything, may, may we learn how to 
connect with you through our emotions. May you guide us as we look for reconciliation with, with people, when we look for reconciliation with you. May you allow us to feel so that we may know that you are present in our lives. Bless us this day. And as we depart here in a few minutes, I hope and pray that we remember these lessons so that our life will be richer in how we experience it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.